Well, good morning. If you have a Bible or would like to turn with one of the Bibles in the seats, we're in Proverbs chapter 5, and it's on page 903 in those Bibles. It's also printed in the, uh, the uh, handout that uh, came alongside the bulletin. I've been looking at the book of Proverbs um, to gain wisdom, biblical wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge, the ability to make choices, oftentimes choices that are outside of the realm of right and wrong. They're better or worse kind of choices, less clear oftentimes. Many people have made the point, helpfully, that uh, we, are, we are people who, uh, by and large, hate rules and love rules. We, we hate to be constrained by things. We like our freedom, our autonomy. At the same time, we like it when rules give us the ability to make decisions more easily. This is the clear choice you need to make right here. Sometimes we get overwhelmed by the decisions in front of us. The making of many rules is oftentimes associated with a, a legalism. In other words, what we do is we construct rules to go around God's laws as sort of a protective barrier where the house is God's laws, but the fence on the outside are these protective barriers. They may provide some help in some situations and make life and decisions easier, but oftentimes the unintended consequences of these extra biblical rules are that they may protect us but keep other people away from God. Many other unintended consequences can come from those types of rules. And Proverbs is a father teaching his son or sons and by extension uh, his daughters and all of us how to make many of the decisions that fall kind of in the realm between the house and the, and, and the fence, the fences that we like to, to put up. The paradigm or the, the picture that uh, the writer is giving us over and over is between choosing wisdom and folly. And he presents this in the form of two women. One woman representing wisdom and one woman representing folly. And he shows over and over again the significance of choosing the right woman. It's an easy enough illustration. Even if we're not married or even if we're not near marriage, we can still appreciate seeing our own parents' marriage, good or bad, or many other marriages around us and seeing how some choose wisely and some choose poorly. That's not to say that marriage is a perfect illustration because none of us chooses the perfect bride or groom. All of us are fallen. And so even in this illustration, we need to be careful not to apply it too closely to all of our life and even our own choices, or else we put ourselves in the judgment seat that only God can rightly have. And frankly, we aren't able to apply the type of grace that's needed like God has applied to us and can apply over and over. Now we come to chapter 5, and these two women... Wisdom and folly now all of a sudden are not uh, metaphorical or illustrative. 
we're speaking of actual women. And a warning that the writer of Proverbs gives to his son or sons to be careful. For the temptations of being united sexually in life are many, and the dangers are significant, lifelong, life and death. As we read through this, bear in mind that this is a particular, a particular situation, a particular case of warning of a type of adultery. It doesn't apply to every case, but it helps us to have principles that can be applied more broadly, especially when we consider other parts of the Scriptures. I suspect that some of this may be painful for some of you who have experienced this type of thing in your own families, whether it was near or far, further away. And I also am aware that there are children in the room here now, and this is sensitive, a sensitive subject. But I'm also aware that there's far more risk in not speaking about the realities of sex and sexuality God's not shy about using terminology descriptive of sex, male and female body parts. The Bible doesn't shy away from it even if you haven't heard it because a lot of pastors avoid it. It's risky. Some people may leave. Some people may be in uncomfortable places. But all of us have been around this enough to know that if we don't enter into some of the uncomfortable places that the problems that are inherent in these subjects are kind of like mold growing on the wall that you can cover up with curtains or maybe even put some more drywall on, but if you don't actually get at the source of the problem, address it, the problem continues to fester, grow, cause long-term damage. Here's the Word of God that comes from the pen of Solomon, son of David, and Father of our Lord Jesus, many generations later. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised reproof. 
I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a foreign woman or a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God stands forever. You pray with me. O Lord, as we enter into a subject that is difficult, that is filled with baggage, that is central to our experience in life. Will you redeem those things that the locusts have eaten? Will you set our hearts and minds on things above where moth and rust don't destroy and apply the balm of your grace and your salvation to our lives in painful, dark places? Will you lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, that we would delight in the things that you delight in and that you've made for us to delight in? And will you guard our hearts and minds? In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. 1968. Actually, in 1969, 50 years ago, we're at the 50-year anniversary of the great 60s and the culmination of the 60s and 69 that many people mark the end of that era of experimentation with the murders of Charles Manson in the city of Los Angeles and his followers. Horrendous acts that seemed to cap the free living and the use of drugs and all kinds of other experimentations in freedom. Let's break the bonds of culture around us. The sexual revolution brought a number of bad things into culture, but we can't look at it and say it was all bad. What happened in the homes of the 1950s and even in many of the churches throughout the last century and even before that were their own set of sexually related problems. And in some ways, 
The revolution brought some of the problems to light as we still are experiencing even to this day as different forms of abuse are finally being prosecuted. And yet we're still muddling our way through the truth and the lies of these things. Trying to figure out what sex is and what it was made for and how we should experience it. The Bible, like I said before, isn't shy about talking about sex. And God presents sex as something that He has given as a beautiful, wonderful, powerful gift to His people. To be enjoyed in the context of marriage. To be experienced in that type of safety. And yet, language that He uses, intoxication-like freedom within the safety of that marriage. That two people can be naked and not ashamed. That they can experience a full delight in one another in language that is hinted at in Proverbs 5 and in the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, brought into even fuller light. By the way, if you heard something that you thought was a, a, a metaphor or some type of illustration for some act or body part, it probably was in this passage. And I'm not going to get any more graphic than that. The 1960s ended with that Manson killing. And it reminded me as I was preparing for this sermon about a song that the Beatles wrote and released in 1968 called Helter Skelter. Of course, Charles Manson famously took over that song and claimed it as his own kind of march to an anarchist kind of uh, uh, overthrowing of culture which he and his followers would end up on top. I was introduced to this song in the 1980s. It was my favorite band. who had just hit it big with the album The Joshua Tree. Went on tour and released another album from the tour, Rattle and Hum, where they performed Helter Skelter. And I remember hearing the introduction of the song before they started singing it, not knowing what it meant. And they said simply, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles. We're stealing it back. Those were powerful words, even though I didn't really know who Charles Manson was or what he had done. I believe that the call of the church in this time and place and age is to recognize that the beauty of created sex and sexuality that God made has been stolen by the evil one. And we need to steal it back. And the way to steal it back is not to avoid the subject, nor to become overly consumed by it and and uh, and 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 talk about it all the time, but to recognize it for what it is and delight in it in its proper place. To speak of it with our children as we raise them up, as we walk on the path with them, and as we put them to bed at night. To not, as many of us have experienced it, have to learn about the subject on our own from various forms of media, and entertainment, 
in the culture speaking to us over and over again. The lies that our sexuality defines us, that our sexuality is something to just be experimented with, that our sexuality is no more than the exchanging of a handshake, as one friend put it to me one time. I decide who I will share it with, was what the person said. There are many lies out there that are competing with and combating with God's truth about sex and sexuality. Joan Didion, writing in a book about the 60s and even 69, titled a series of essays, the series of essays, The White Album, and writing one of those uh, essays, she made an important observation about the power of stories in our life. She's a beautiful storyteller, California native, not a believer. But she simply opened one of her essays with the important point that we tell ourselves stories to give meaning to life. And the stories we tell about our sex, sexuality, experiences with sex have amazing power to define the meaning of our lives. Maybe you grew up in an environment that was filled with some type of abuse. And so to hear the words written about a husband and wife delighting in one another and experiencing the type of joy in sex is completely foreign to you. Even if you're married and have been with your wife and, uh, or husband for decades, you have still rarely, if ever, experienced true joy during sexual intercourse. The story that you tell or that you have been told is that there is little or no hope in this. It is something that I have to endure. There's nothing better to be experienced. I know I've experienced it. Maybe you're in a place where your introduction to sex was not at all from a parent's conversation with you. Maybe you never had a conversation with your parents on the subject of sex. You were introduced to the whole thing and continue to learn primarily through watching it on some type of screen. I'm pretty sure that there is a large percentage of the church who can say that not just male, though predominantly male, also female. Whose first exposure to even the concept of sex was probably watching a movie like Top Gun and just a little bit of exposure to a scene that, uh, that seemed to lead to, to, uh, to, to intercourse and, and, and that was what has defined your life and experience. As one person put it, your life story is defined 
by never measuring up. His line that he got from somebody else, this is a pastor, said that real sex is just bad porn. Maybe you're in a place where your experience with sex was with a partner before you were married, even as a young person, and you're wanting something of the feeling of that intimacy back in your life again. Everything you've experienced since then has not held the hope or the expectation, even awkward as that time may have been, that that newness of the whole experience held. And so you're wondering, does it get any better? Can it be experienced as something else? Maybe you're looking back on that time and saying, and experiencing some type of immense guilt, thinking I have lost what I cannot get back. I want to experience health in my marriage. Or I want to be married sometime and experience this type of joy and experience, but I feel like I can never get that, in the words of uh, Shakespeare, that, that, that damned spot off my hand. It just won't go away. I'm sure that there are a number of more stories that have been experienced here. And the one that is told in this passage, the warning against this scenario, is one that maybe some of you have experienced, either yourselves on one side or the other, or in your immediate family. The warning that Solomon gives in its specificity is against the seductress, seductive woman. Now, we've made this point multiple times, and it's worth saying again just briefly that not only women can be seductive, men can be as well. And I'll also add to this that not every form of adultery is at the hands of a seductress woman or one person being seductive and using the other person for their benefit. Ultimately, adultery is all a using of other people for illicit uh, purposes, but it doesn't always take this precise form. Let's just look through the story part by part, and let me make the point right off the bat that this does not cover every problem or every opportunity of sex in marriage. The story is Solomon speaking to his son to keep discretion, to use Wisdom. Here there is a clear right and wrong. Stay away from this. Notice the son seems to be older here, or at least he's speaking to him as if he is older. So it's not a child or teenager. This is perhaps a married son. And he says, keep discretion. Stay away from that. You're married, and in this situation, this other woman is also married. He has a little play on words in verses 2 and 3. He says that your lips may guard, guard knowledge. 
that you would speak knowledge, wisdom, that you would understand it and not allow other things to come out of your... And he turns around in verse 3 and he says, but the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey. Interesting how the lips can be this source of good and source of evil. Many people have compared sex to the power of a, a gun. It can be used to defend many and to do much good. It can also be used for much evil. It is a powerful thing, as are the lips. And the lips of this forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech or her palate is smooth. But in the end, she's bitter and sharp as a two-edged sword. The story goes on to explain how this woman is using this man to, for her own benefit, to escape her own marriage, to probably be united to this man and leave her own marriage. And even there's language later that speaks of her relatives perhaps even benefiting from this. This is perhaps a bit of a scenario that's unfamiliar, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine this scenario. And even if the temptation that you might face in your life to be seduced by somebody else or by foolishness itself in many other forms takes a different form. This vivid image is not a difficult one to remember. Be warned that those things that oftentimes drip with honey seem sweet and smooth are oftentimes bitter, sharp, and lead us in paths to death. You say, you know, these words almost need not be spoken. And the reality is that sometimes the words don't need to be spoken. And probably for many of us, we don't need to hear these words right now until they do need to be spoken. The comedian's line for improv in comedy is, it works until it doesn't work. It works until you're in the hotel for a business meeting and you know the door you can go to. And you're faced with the decision, do I heed the wisdom of Proverbs that says, don't go near that door? Or do you say, I can handle this. I'll just dip my toe in a little bit. I'll play with sin a little bit. It'll give me a little bit of release from anxiety. It'll make me feel better. That is the word of seduction. If you just do this, it'll give you a little bit of relief, reprieve from the things that are stressing you out in life. One helpful book on this subject is a book written by Dan Allender, Tremper Longman, together called Intimate Allies. They explore some of what it is to be united, united in, in marriage read a little passage from their book here on um, on the dangers of playing around with with sin and, and thinking it won't do us any harm we can control this thing and I say put simply married sexuality will always be fraught with more problems tensions and disappointments than immorality kind of a surprising sentence probably not what you expected Here's what they go on to say. Why? Because more is at stake 
More can go wrong when leaving and weaving is incomplete, a concept that they do leaving, weaving, cleaving, knitting our hearts together. Immorality attempts to do an end run around the problems of relationship. And for a time, usually short, it works with fewer complications than marital sexuality. Sin works for a season, but the wages of immorality are always more disastrous than the recurrent struggles of a growing and struggling marital union. Put simply, married, I'm repeating, put simply, married sexuality will always be fraught with more problems, tensions, and disappointments than immorality. The appeals of some other thing, the grass is greener, the, the problems are fewer, this person won't bring it. Always, always look deceptively simple in comparison to what we have. I say always, but if, if we're experiencing the alternative, then those things actually start to become less and less appealing. Now here's the problem. Most of us approach this problem of sexual temptation and, 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 uh, and even the issue of adultery with an attitude that's more like the teaching of Gandhi than the teaching of Jesus. You know how Gandhi approached sex? He, brilliant man, peaceful, a protester, change agent for culture. But do you know how Gandhi approached sex? When he had his moment of enlightenment, and left his profession as a successful lawyer and took a vow of poverty, even though he was married, he also entered a vow of celibacy at that time. Now you go back to some of the ancient church fathers, they take some strange approaches to sexual temptation as well. In fact, Origen castrates himself to prevent himself from engaging in, in various in, in sex. Probably did not solve the problem. I don't know the details of it. But the Bible actually presents a different alternative. It doesn't say... You have to be so self-controlled that you have no desire sexually. Rather, it says God made you with these desires. Not all of those desires are helpful or healthful. Recognize the difference. Know that there's a call for restraint and self-control. But a spiritual maturity is not reached when you have mastered the whole control and have no desires whatsoever anymore. That is a teaching that comes not from God, but from Satan. Now some are called to not marry. The Apostle Paul was called to not marry. Jesus himself was called to not marry. And the control that's required in that situation is a different one than what we're speaking of today. For the wisdom that's given here in this scenario is to a son who is married. Quite frankly, if you can't control yourself in that, you probably don't have a call to singleness 
And many people mistake that call and enter into all kinds of problems because they've mistaken that call and don't enter into the beautiful bond of marriage that's been provided. Now, some other people would love to be married. Would love to be married. But let me just make this side point that part of the problem that many people face with marriage and not marrying today is precisely tied in with the many problems that people experience with sex and sexuality in their history and the lack of self-control now that people just don't speak about it and so they enter into anything and they don't hear the words of warning that are so necessary. And hear me clearly, it may be working for you now, whatever you're doing until it doesn't work. If you're not listening to the words of the Bible and the teachings of Scripture on sex and sexuality, you are on a path that is marked by folly and at some point you will not be able to control it. Probably sooner than later if you haven't experienced it already. So what do we do? What is the answer that the Bible presents? And in this particular scenario, what's the answer that Solomon is giving to his son. And I want you to just see two things come out here. The first one is a pattern of confession that's found in the form of looking ahead and considering the path that you might be on, that your path is leading to. And coming back, I'm looking in verse 12 here and recognizing even now how I hated discipline. How my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. And now I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Now, if you're at that point far down the road and you feel like all hope is lost, you need to hear the truth of the gospel that no point, no person has gone to that point where all hope is lost. Solomon's father David responds to the prophet Nathan when the Lord convicts his heart by calling him out for his practice of adultery. Lord Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son who goes away and enters into all kinds of sexual infidelity with prostitutes. And what does his father do? When he, the son, is at the end of his rope, he has nothing left, no money, he has no other, he comes back to the father, and the father receives him back. But I suspect that many of us, some of us here, are in the place where we're today making early life decisions and we bristle at the idea of discipline and reproof. We get scared of somebody coming in and telling us, no, this is what you should do. Are you teachable? Are you fearful? Do you know the teachers who are trustworthy to give you good advice? There are many counselors out there eager to give advice who will advise you on paths that lead to death. But if you have those good, trusted advisors, are you teachable? Or when you hear correction, does your spine stiffen up? So you put up a, 
a block. Relationally. If not physically. You cut off the phone calls from a friend. If you're in that place, then the call first in this passage is to enter into a time of confession to the Lord first and also to the other people who you've pushed away and say, mold me, teach me, shape me, Lord. Make me into the person that you want me to be. Forgive me. Forgive me for my arrogance. For my arrogance is the path of folly. It's the path of death. It's the path of repeated hurt and pain. It may even be a path where somebody steals and takes from you. A little on this context here that's helpful is just really brief. Remember that Solomon is, is wealthy and his son is going to be wealthy. Men oftentimes had much power and control of the wealth in that culture as well, which is probably going on here. And so this other woman is not just interested in finding somebody who completes her, but she's likely interested in finding somebody who can make her life comfortable. And it's not just for her, it's for her family. Verse 10 says, less strangers take their fill in your strength. And that word stranger or forbidden woman, or alien and foreigner. It's all tied together, and it's repeated over and over again. It kind of ties together the family. And when we hear it, we think, oh, he's talking about uh, people from Moab or Egypt that came into Israel, and they're wanting to take Solomon's Israelite wealth. But if you remember back to earlier in Proverbs, this concept of the forbidden woman was there as well. And we looked at what it meant. And do you remember that, that it spoke of that forbidden woman breaking the covenant with her God, meaning the God of Israel. This forbidden woman isn't a foreigner from another country. It is somebody who is a part of the people of God who's forgotten what it means to be a person of their God, in relationship with their God. The illustration of adultery for the people who follow God running after other gods as if a person who runs after another lover is all throughout Scripture. And so this, this foreign woman or this stranger, this forbidden woman and her family are the people who have left the covenant. They've left the promises of God and they're pursuing something on their own. They're trying to figure out a different way, a way out around, an end round to get their needs met. And they've begun colluding with one another. And they come up with their own schemes and they twist some of the parts of Scripture to fit their own uses. When we read about this woman, we shouldn't think of the foreign woman, the foreigner, the person, different race. That's not at all what he's getting at. He's talking about the person who has left the covenant that they have with God and gone out on their own. And when you understand this, you understand this applies much broader than just sexuality. This applies to all of life. Your way doesn't seem to be working for me in the short term, God. Let me figure my own way out. I need to have a different path here. I don't like your word. And what 
what God is saying is that the fulfillment, the fulfillment in relationship when it is licit, legal, when it's the things that, not according to the state's laws, but according to God's laws, when it's the way that God designed it, has this beautiful union. This beautiful union that is described in marital bliss that even is describing a scene in a bedroom. He doesn't paint pictures, but using words, he describes this scene. And we don't need to look at all of what the words mean. You can get some idea of it. But I want you to just look at verse 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed. Remember what the word blessed means? Blessed isn't just happy. Blessed is when we experience joy because somebody else is giving it to us, externally applied to us. So we're blessed by God. We bless God. Let your fountain be blessed by another and rejoice in the wife of your youth. This is the second main thing. The first thing was confess your sins. If you're in the, it's the second main thing. And whether you've been married a short time or a long time or even th- in the plans to get married or thinking about marriage, this is such a key to marriage. Rejoice in the other person. Avoid the temptation to find all the faults in the other person. It's so easy to pick those out and to, and to, 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 to sit on them and to let them fester in us You didn't take out the trash. I'm going to hold that against you. You did cook dinner. I'm going to delight in that. You didn't clean up something. I'm going to hold that against you. You did do this. I'm going to pause just for a second because I was afraid of being hot just because I was talking about sex. But now I'm just hot because the air conditioner turned off. There's a button over there on the side of the AC. And everyone in this room has permission to go and turn that on at any point in time. It just You have to press it twice, the button on the side. And there it comes. Yesterday I was in an all-day meeting and there was this war between people who wanted the AC on and the AC off. I, th- I think everybody in here wants the AC on. <laughs> This simple point, when we choose to rejoice in something that's beautiful, even though it has faults, failings, we change the way we think ourselves and our mindset ourselves, but we also give the other person an opportunity to live into the beauty that God has made them in. I use the language often, I don't know if you pick up on it, of God delighting in us in worship. It's almost always when I pray a prayer of uh, invocation at the beginning or a prayer of adoration, I pray that we would experience God's delight in us. Listen, sin is real. We need to be convicted of our sin daily. We need to confess our sin. We talked about it earlier. But the danger of taking a Puritan approach to sex and sexuality and even life and the valley of vision, when it's misapplied, I think most people misread the the Puritans, but when it's misapplied, we sit in the valley of Baca, the valley of pain, the valley of sin, the valley of confession and shame. 
and we never experience the joy of delight that God has given to us as people made in his image. As sinners who have been redeemed and restored, and God describes in the book of Isaiah as being like a beautiful bride decked out for a bridegroom. The language that God used to describe his church as a bride and the picture that we have of a groom seeing his bride emerge from the back of the sanctuary and just delight in the absolute beauty. The absolute beauty. Now, I heard this illustration. I thought it was a bit weird. I wasn't going to use it, but I'm going to use it right now. Keller, Tim Keller uses this illustration at the end of his sermon. Maybe I'm going to regret this. He says, a bride, in no culture in the world does a bride ever wear a swimsuit up the aisle. He says, the dresses on a wedding day are intended to cover the problems. because He says, because very few people really look good in a bathing suit. <laughs> And the reason is that we all have faults. But on that wedding day, the the wedding dress is designed to present you as beautiful. You don't need to be airbrushed and everything else to look at. We don't need to compare ourselves with other people that we see in magazines or on, on television. The image of the bride who is presented in all of her beauty without the faults on display. It's the image that we need to understand about who we are and have been made in Christ when he clothes us in righteousness. And he calls us his own and delights in us and his bride. Now listen, we need to take that into our marriages and delight in the other person, men with women and women with men too. This is not one way or the other. To look and use this type of language. Now you can make this whatever you need to. It's a, you know, culturally the lovely deer and the graceful doe is a little bit strange for us. But, but what are the things? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the body parts. Don't be afraid of all those other things. The beauty of how God made us to be in marriage, one man, one woman, is this, that we would be naked and not ashamed. And I'll tell you, Here's my experience. When that's, when that's happening, you actually are making each other more beautiful, beautiful physically, emotionally. You're, you're giving security to the other person that, that, that makes somebody more relationally enjoyable. I mean, it's awkward when somebody is incredibly insecure. They, 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 it's just tough to have a conversation with. But somebody who is secure in who they are is delightful because they're not focused on themselves. They can attend to your needs. See, the blessings that, that, that begin oftentimes with God and then in the marriage room extend out into all kinds of other relationships and conversations and, and health because, because our security isn't, isn't in question. We're not wondering if the other person loves us. But, but this, this takes a decision and a commitment. And a recognition that you're loving somebody who is imperfect and thank God because they're loving you and you're imperfect too. And when we come to this and we take not a Gandhian stoicism towards sex, but enjoy all these things, we realize that that sex is not something that God turns his, his back on. It says, it's outside of my sight. 
It's not like he's some kind of peeping Tom looking in the bedroom, but he's, it's not outside of his sight. For verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Now, God is not a sexual being. Different from all the other ancient gods who were consumed by sex and playing around with sex all the time. God is not a sexual being. He doesn't need it nor desire it, but he made it for us. But his eyes are always on us. He judges us rightly, but also helpfully. And he gives us these instructions, not as one who is condemning and not wanting us to have a good time, but as one who wants us to experience true joy, true delight, euphoric orgasm. Can we use these words in the church in appropriate ways that we would experience God more fully and not allow Satan to have the things that God has made for his purpose? You remember the story, of course, that C.S. Lewis says that we're content making mud pies in the slums because we don't understand desire. And we treat it too lightly. And we try to kill our desire instead of increasing our desire that we would experience the joy of vacation on a seashore. We live in San Diego. The sea is always right there. But the joys of sex outside of marriage and the joys of sex outside of God's design are mud pies compared to the joy that he's given us in the design he's made us for in marriage. Let's pray. Father, will you dig down deep into our hearts and bring healing in places that we have experienced hurt and pain, that we still experience shame and fear and insecurity. And will you renew in us a right spirit that experiences you to the fullest, delights in you with our whole being, that recognizes that your wisdom is for all of life, including in the marriage bedroom. We love you and we thank you for the ways you have loved us and called us your own, making us your beautiful bride. And we pray this in Jesus, our groom, our bridegroom's name. Amen.